and hopefully you're laughing too because that's a good thing to do. Let's get on with the show. This is Closets Are For Clothes on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm going to play a little thing first so I have time to do that. Wetlands are home to hundreds of wild... They also purify our water and provide extraordinary places to enjoy the outdoors. But more than half our original wetlands have disappeared and we lose 100,000 additional wetland acres every year. Since 1937, Ducks Unlimited has led the charge to restore and protect our wetlands. 1-800-45-DUCKS or log on to www.ducks.org. From the campus of the University of Michigan, streaming live on the web at wcbn.org, you're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. The views and opinions expressed on WCBN Public Affairs Programming are solely those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent those of WCBN as a whole or the licensees of this station, the Regents of the University of Michigan. Good evening. I'm David Christopher from Meitzler. You're listening to WCBN, and we're broadcasting out of the basement of the Student Activities Building on the campus of the University of Michigan. You're listening to Closets Are for Clothes. The topic tonight, avoid the disease. The disease, HIV. It stands for Human Immunodeficiency Virus. Viruses are submicroscopic infectious agents that replicate once inside a host cell. And some examples of disease caused by viruses are the common cold, influenza, chicken pox, measles, and some cancers. HIV is different from most other viruses because it attacks the immune system. And it's our immune system that gives our bodies the ability to fight infections. Normally, our immune system is in a relentless battle all day and all night to keep our body alive and resist what is constant exposure to infection. HIV finds and destroys a type of white blood cell, known as T-cells, or CD4 cells, that the immune system must have in order to fight disease. There is a critical level of T-cells in humans, and once the body falls below that level, the body becomes progressively more susceptible to opportunistic infections. And those are infections that would not otherwise cause a problem in a healthy immune system, but if the immune system is compromised, then there is more opportunity for infections to occur and diseases to develop. It can take 25 days to three months to develop antibodies to HIV from the time of initial exposure. HIV is the virus that causes acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, commonly known as AIDS or AIDS. AIDS is the final stage of HIV infection. It can take years for a person infected with HIV, even without treatment, to reach this stage. Having AIDS means that the virus has weakened the immune system to the point at which the body has a difficult time fighting infection. When someone has one or more specific infections, certain cancers, or a very low number of T-cells, he or she is considered to have AIDS. 
Eventually, most HIV-infected individuals develop AIDS, and these individuals mostly die from the opportunistic infections or from other life-threatening problems associated with the progressive failure of the immune system. Currently, without treatment, 9 out of every 10 persons with HIV will progress to AIDS after approximately 10 to 15 years, and many progress much sooner. Treatment with medications known as antiretrovirals can increase the life expectancy of people with HIV. Even after HIV has progressed to a diagnosable AIDS, the average survival time with antiretroviral therapy as of uh, 2005 is estimated to be more than five years. Without antiretroviral therapy, death can occur within a year. HIV infection in humans is now pandemic, meaning that it is prevalent throughout an entire country or a continent or even the whole world. And indeed, it is the whole world. Currently, HIV infects about 0.6% of the world's population. According to information on the disease available through the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, and other sources, from 1981 to 2006, AIDS killed more than 25 million people. In 2007, AIDS killed an estimated 2.1 million people worldwide, including 330,000 children. In 2007, an estimated 33.2 million people lived with the disease worldwide, with an estimated 2.5 million people newly affected in 2007. That's the global picture. Now on to the local side. HARC is the HIV AIDS Resource Center. It's a private, nonprofit organization founded in 1986. It is located in Ypsilanti, and serves four counties in Michigan. Those are Jackson, Lenaway, Livingston, and Washtenaw. It is dedicated to providing services to people living with HIV and AIDS. HARC also acts as a clearinghouse of HIV and AIDS-related information, education, and outreach. HARC's prevention team provides programs to help decrease HIV transmission, such as HIV risk reduction education, HIV testing, harm reduction services, and positive prevention. HARC provides case management and advocacy services for people who have HIV and AIDS. According to the H. RC website, HARC website, uh, they want to offer a caring hand and compassionate care to ensure that people living with HIV and AIDS can maintain control over their lives. The case management services work that they do helps to link clients to medical care, support groups, nutrition services, housing assistance, mental health services, food pantries, transportation, and emergency financial assistance for clients in need. For this edition of Closets, we will discuss the disease HIV, its testing, and prevention. My guests are both from the HIV AIDS Resource Center, Jimena Loveluck, who is the Executive Director, and Leon Golson, who is the Director of Prevention Programs. Hello to you both. Hi. Hello. That was a long introduction because it's such a, it's a, it's a complicated infection uh, and viral, a virus problem, and it leads to a complicated disease, and thus it, uh, it is become such a, a significant issue across the world that we have now this center. Well, we've had it for some time, the H, uh, the HARC Center, HIV AIDS Resource Center. And that's all you do is specialize in HIV and AIDS. 
That's correct. A uh, range of HIV services because um, it's important to be able to provide as much as possible under one roof, especially when people have a lot of um, denial about risk for HIV or are experiencing the stigma related to HIV. It's important that there be a place where they feel safe, where they can get the services they need, and really uh, take advantage of a range of services that we can offer. Those services are not available elsewhere? Not to the extent to which we provide them, and that, and also not completely all under one roof. There are certainly similar services available in other organizations, and we work very collaboratively with those to complement each other's services and make sure we're not duplicating our services and efforts. But there are some some services we provide that we're the only ones that are that are doing those services. Mm-hmm. And are there similar agencies like HARC across the country? Oh yeah, definitely. It, it was county based, or, or uh, because I, as I uh, described, Hark is privately owned. Mm-hmm. Why is it privately owned? Why isn't this a public funded issue? Well, to a certain extent, it is a publicly funded issue. The CDC receives funds from the federal government, and the CDC has um, a division solely devoted to HIV and AIDS, and our health department, state health department, as well as other state health departments throughout the nation work works hand-in-hand with the CDC to acquire those fundings and to put in place those interventions that have been, um, so we say, given the CDC's grace Mm -hmm. uh, to be put out there in the public and hopefully have an impact on HIV and AIDS. And the same is true on the case management side with Ryan White, which is federal funding that we receive then through the state community health department. So a lot of our funding is public funding. I think one of the important things is to remember that aid service organizations really started through grassroots efforts of people that were directly affected by HIV, that were living with HIV, dying from AIDS, um, their loved ones, and felt that our public health system and our government wasn't doing enough to respond to this crisis. You're talking about, you're going back to the early 1980s? Yes. And uh, so is this, is it the gay and lesbian community that that really was the grassroots effort you're talking about? For the most part, they were certainly in the leadership role. Obviously, since that time, HIV affects a uh, broad range of people, um, all races and ethnicities, all sexual orientations, ages, what have you. Um, so certainly that picture and that involvement has gotten more diverse over time. But yes, that was a uh, the LGBT community played a critical role in fighting for HIV services and treatment. Where was the disease centralized back at that time, really, because it, 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 it didn't start in the United States. It, it started elsewhere in the world. Where was it centralized? Where was the, the, the I guess, the, uh, I don't know, epicenter? What, what, are they, what are they called, disease central locations? Well, yeah, epicenter is a yeah. good word they use. And with regards to HIV and, and your question about that, the media has a lot to do with how that's perceived more accurately. Back in the 80s, when we were seeing a lot of people coming in the last stages of their HIV infection, this was happening worldwide. But because of the media being the media, they focused on certain uh, communities. Well, here in the U.S., we saw the MSM community, Men Who Have Sex With Men, being impacted hardest hit here, as well as Haitians, mm-hmm. um, people who use heroin uh, and hemophiliacs. So the, our media focused on that here back mm-hmm. in the 80s. Mm-hmm. What they didn't show was that elsewhere in the world, 
populations of uh, heterosexuals were also being impacted and dying of this infection, but we didn't see that on our, mm -hmm. you know, evening news. So it was a pretty even distribution of what was going on back in the There was no the CNN, um, or um, I have um, my technology, my technology history is a little off. <laughs> I'm not sure if there was uh, CNN coverage back in the early 1980s of that. I'm not sure. Uh, okay, so suffice it to say, uh, there was an honest representation of the disease in the way it was affecting the world at that time. It was a, a, a misleading or mischaracterization of the disease, which led to a misunderstanding by the by the public. Well, it wasn't a, a comprehensive representation of what was going on mm -hmm. in the world, and um, because truly those groups, you know, we were impacted by what you saw was true, you know here in the media with regards to USA and, and HIV, what you saw was true. It just wasn't a complete picture of what was going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, HIV is a private and it's a nonprofit organization, so how do they survive? Uh, HARC is a um, private and nonprofit organization. We survive through partial state funding um, uh, and through fundraisers that we have throughout the year and private donations. Uh, those are the three major funding uh, components for our agency. Mm -hmm. HIV AIDS Risk Center, our center tests. They do HIV tests. We're going to go into details about that a little mm -hmm. bit uh, coming up. But how much is a, does a test cost? Because then HARC has to pay for that. Uh, how, much, how much does a test cost A HARC? test costs, well, technically, to be accurate, it doesn't really cost HARC, cost HARC anything. Mm -hmm. It costs the state okay. about $30 a test. Um, for the ore shore, because mm -hmm. there's there's the ore shore, which is the swabbing. Mm -hmm. There's the needle draw, your standard needle draw, where we draw blood and look for antibodies on there. We offer the ore shore, what I call the old ore shore. It takes about a week mm -hmm. uh, to 10 days for test results to get back. There's also a rapid version of mm -hmm. the ore shore, which is like 20 minutes, mm -hmm. and you get results. Uh, so the ore shore that we are using costs the state about $20, $25 per test per agency that's you know, using it. Mm -hmm. So it's quite expensive. Okay. So funding is obviously very necessary for any organization that's that's involved. Even even if the state is doing it, there needs to be appropriations uh, in the in within the government to provide budgeting and funding for those examinations. That's correct. Yes. And also we need to ensure that we have funding to support our staff and keep our office doors open and our lights on. So a lot of uh, what we are not able to stretch from our grant funding, that's where the importance of private donations and fundraising comes in. Sure. And it also gives us some flexibility as well as to what we do as far as services that might be supported with those funds. Let's talk about the people. How many people you have over there? We have uh, 15 full-time staff and three part-time staff. Uh -huh. And are these are these medical people? Are they what kind of counseling credentials do they have? They they're not necessarily. Uh, they don't necessarily have a medical background, but uh, many of them come with years of experience in education and human mm -hmm. services, public health, social work. Um, and they're all certified by the Michigan Department of Community Health to do the various jobs that they do. So, for example, it's a requirement that all of our test counselors be certified by the state and go through a training process that's quite lengthy and involved. Um, same thing with our case managers. They have to be certified by the state as well. So there are some requirements and certifications that all our staff go through and attain in order to provide quality services. Mm -hmm. And just as a side note of information, not a lot of people know this, but Michigan is number one in the nation when it comes to quality assurance 
around HIV test counseling. So does quality assurance mean that it's being checked or that it's rated as exemplary or satis- greater than satisfactory? Quality assurance meaning that um, it's being checked to make sure that all our counselors okay. have all the skills necessary to do a good job at uh, HIV test counseling pre and post um, of the test. And that um, problems are being solved along the way is constantly being reassessed the uh, counseling process is constantly being re- reassessed by the department, which is called HAPIS, uh, under the Michigan Department of Community, he- uh, Community Health. Mm-hmm. HAPIS stands for HIV AIDS Prevention Intervention Section, mm-hmm. and it's their job to make sure that it stays up to par. Sounds like a, uh, it sounds like they're doing a good job. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, and, and so you, it's because hard because you're doing a good job. <laughs> yeah. That's what, yeah, that's that's sort of, sort of what I mean. And uh, what's the traffic at uh, Hark? How many people are you getting walking through that door? It varies. Our test clinic, uh, we have testing there on Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 8 p.m., Wednesdays from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., and Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And it varies throughout the week, um, throughout the year, depending what's going on. Traffic flow may be a little heavier around those National HIV Awareness Days, such as World AIDS, uh, World AIDS Day, uh, National HIV AIDS Testing Day, National Latino AIDS Testing Day, and Black AIDS Awareness uh, uh, Day as well. So tra- uh, foot traffic picks up, picks up a little bit during those, mm-hmm. or depends on um, if there's been a big focus on it in the media We'll get more calls and more f- for traffic as well in accordance to that. And I, on an annual basis, we, we do about 750 to 800 tests mm-hmm. on an annual basis. How does that compare to previous years? That's been about steady, it's been actually. steady, yeah. Yeah, it has. Mm-hmm. And um, are they just, what kind of population do you have? Is it, is it gay men? Is it lesbians? Is it, uh, a, a straight, you have a lot of straight people coming in? I mean, what? We get a, your yeah, we get a mix of everybody. Yeah. And it's one of the uh, balancing acts that we have to do as an agency. Um, our funding is not, when we get funding from, say, HAPIS, right, from the Michigan mm-hmm. Department of Community Health, it's not a free-for-all. They have specific objectives written um, as to how they want that money spent, what work they want done with their monies. So a specific number of a specific group of people are to be reached with their, those funds. So there's a delicate balancing act there. We do get, you know, our doors are open to any and everybody. You know, we don't, we try not to turn down anyone who comes through our door for an HIV test. Uh, at the same time, we do have to exert um, some outreach efforts to men who have sex with men, uh, injectable drug users, and, um, well, not so much. Well, we're working on that. High-risk heterosexuals mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And who gives HEPAS their guidelines? I mean, they're they're telling you they're giving you a, a plan to follow. Mm-hmm. Who's telling who's who's have, who's above them? Well, their funding comes from the CDC at the okay. federal level. So the so, CDC is so essentially CDC establishing. Is, yeah, and so then that is going to cause for standardization of testing practices across the country. I'm, I'm assuming because mm-hmm. yes, they all have should. to follow underneath the, underneath right. those right. guidelines. And of course, it's based also on what the local picture is. So. Uh, looking at epidemiology, statistics, looking at trends in HIV infection on a local basis, who are the people that are most at risk? And 
it makes sense that if you're using public dollars, then the responsible thing to do is target those funds to those who are most in need or most at risk. And in our area, it continues to be men who have sex with men. Mm -hmm. So there's some, um, you know, rationale behind that as well. Now, let's talk just a moment about HIV, and then we'll we'll talk about some uh, testing issues. It's my understanding that some people are immune to HIV. Is that true? Hmm. Well, immune, that's such a funny word. Um, I'm careful with regards to using that word. I've been living with my infection. It'll be 20 years next year that Mm -hmm. I've been HIV positive. What some of the... um, I don't want to call it controversy, but some of the um, research that's going on out there with regards to immunity, quote unquote, uh, has to do with they've looked back at uh, those uh, folks who survived the Black Plague and their ancestors. A genetic lineage too. You got it. Yeah. Yes, because there were people back then who were, you know, handling the dead mm-hmm. and give, giving care to those who were dying, and they did not um, come down with the Black Plague. So. They were. They're looking. The researchers are looking at that, and lo and behold, they were to find that there was there's some indicator or marker on their white cells that um, prevented them from, you know, getting the black plague. And they're trying to see if there's a correlation with regards to HIV. And they don't have the enough. Case. I'm assuming they don't have enough data yet to do a test to see if a person has that immunity. Yeah, they've okay. got a long way to go. So that's to come. Yeah, and my standard line that I've been putting out there for as long as I've been infected is. You have your cure. You've had your cure for a long time. If you aren't infected with HIV, it's just a matter of acting on those prevention messages when you need to. There's your cure right mm-hmm. there. So prevention. Uh, so all right. So f- let's talk about testing. First of all, who should get tested? Anyone who's engaged in um, risky behavior that might have put them, you know, at risk for HIV. Next question: What's that? <laughs> what, what is risky behavior? Well, we'll start with the number one. Number one way this virus is transmitted around the world, and that's through sex. Mm-hmm. Unprotected anal, oral, or vaginal intercourse with someone who's infected will put you at risk for HIV infection. Question mark. There being a lot of times when we're engaging in sex with someone, we may not know that other person's status or their true status. Mm-hmm. Right? The second most common way this virus is moving from one person to another is through sharing of needles, although through the work of uh, wonderful needle exchange programs throughout the nation. We've gotten those numbers to go down with regards to needle exchange transmission. A mother who's infected with HIV may pass it on to her unborn child. Um, and in some rare, rare instances, particularly outside the U.S. of a person may become infected with HIV through a blood transfusion. I mentioned earlier that uh, some 330,000 children have died of, of uh, AIDS. Mm-hmm. And how did they acquire the disease? Was it through the things you're talking about with uh, being passed on by the mother and and blood transfusions and everything else? Mm -hmm. Depending on where those numbers are coming from, um, that that would probably be um, what you'd see, uh, mother-to-child transmission or blood transfusion. Um, And I would probably venture to say in some rare instances, sexual transmission as well. If a person believes that they practice safe sex, should they get tested? Well, we like to use the term safer sex. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that when people come to our doors for testing, we try and get a picture of them of what safer sex has been for them. Whether that's, cause that's so different you're having them people. define it? Exactly. Well, that, isn't there an official definition? What well, there are <laughs> standards or guidelines that we will share with an individual mm-hmm. and the whole thing with um, 
HIV testing or any type of behavior-based work you're trying to do is you want to meet the person where they are. And you want to try and together come up with a game plan that's going to work for them. Because um, if it doesn't work for them, if the options aren't realistic for them, the behavior isn't going to change. Results, they won't see you know, a change in results. So their standard guidelines, again, those being saying no, you know, or putting sex off, using barriers such as latex condoms, dental dams, the female condom or internal condom, as we like to call it, um, engaging in those activities, sexual activities that don't involve in the direct change of blood, semen, vaginal fluid, breast milk, or pre-cum, because those are the body fluids that can transmit HIV from one person to another. So those are standard guidelines. Now, in and around those, they're, you know, depending on what a person's been doing or what a person's comfortable with or not doing, that's where a safer sex plan or safer sex goal um, is going to be unique for that particular person. Well, I'm guessing if we're talking about sex between more than, uh, you know, two people or more, mm -hmm. that they're each going to have their own definition. You got it. And so that's going to create a complication. You got it. Yeah. Communication is another reason why we're still we are still seeing a very serious issue with HIV and the other sexually transmitted infections. A lot of people, a lot of us are working on assumptions. Well, he didn't say anything, so I guess he all right. So I'm not gonna bring it up either. So give me on. give me examples of proper way to communicate. Well yeah. oh. Because even though you people are asking, you know, trying to ask, well, are you infected or you know, have you do you have anything and it all goes down to so you're, you know, you're having a little difficulty because it's hard and so and you're not even in the moment <laughs> that's right it's a hard thing to do to have that open frank honest discussion about okay i have herpes or yes i have hiv or i've just you know uh, just got over a bout of gonorrhea it's real hard for people when to is that supposed honest. to happen this discussion preferably like before dinner, dinner time well, I mean, when is it supposed to happen preferably before sexual activity take place versus afterwards sure you know how soon before then is really left up to the individual and the circumstances that they're dealing with. And we're assuming, I'm assuming, that if they make a disclosure, mm -hmm. yay or nay, mm -hmm. that they're being honest. Yes. Yes. And that's, that's not a guarantee? No, it's not. And that's part of the challenge, and that's why testing is important. Because we ask that question. Well, how do you know your partner's status? Oh, they told me. And, you know, we, we have to, you know, we have to give, you know, for trust and in a relationship and honesty. At the same time, we do hope that people will use some uh, a basis of common sense and healthy boundaries, you know, in relationship to that. All right. Let's say uh, I've been tested and I'm curious about my partner. Is there a way for me to have him tested discreetly so he doesn't know it, but I'm getting some kind of a sample that I'm going to have tested? Not unless you really know the ins and, <laughs> ins and out of the testing procedures. You'd have to, first of all, um, get access to an orsher, um test or, you know, a need the, you know, needle and draw the blood or have the swab the mouth, inside the mouth. Well, we've talked about body fluid. That's right. How about a sample of that? Can, well, I, you can can't I put just... that in a small container? No, mm, no. Nope. Sterile container or something? No, that's not going to work. The, the uh, sample would be uh, compromised, contaminated. The Orishu is a specially designed um, swab that collects and preserves that sample. So you mm -hmm. can't just wrap up some semen in a tissue and put it in a tube and send it off. Are there home right. test kits? There are HIV home test kits available at uh, local drug stores. Um, they are rather pricey. 
um, a person can go purchase one of those, prick their finger because it's a finger prick, and on a strip, mail it into, um, there's a special envelope that it gets mailed into the lab. And they call back in with the code and their results are given to them over the phone. And and if I can just jump in and point out in in regards to the, your previous scenario about have you know getting a sample from your partner to get tested, um, there is at at this time, uh, and that may change somewhat in our state, but people do have to give informed consent to be tested for HIV. So that's an important part to remember that, right. um, especially if you're using, if you're getting tested through any publicly funded uh, organization or public health department, you know, by law, even in a hospital, by law, you have to give informed consent for your sample, whether it be a blood sample or an oral sample to be tested for HIV. And informed consent means that you are acknowledging that you are submitting your uh, blood or whatever it is mm-hmm. to for this specific test. Mm-hmm. Correct. And that is not necessary, though, if you do a self-purchase test. Do you, I mean, you don't, I mean, it's not an issue, right? It's right. not an issue, okay. right. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're going to talk about testing in a little bit. We're uh, going to come back to that. We're talking to Leon Golson and Jimena Loveluck from the HIV AIDS Resource Center here in Washtenaw County. Up next is Keith Orr with the book report from Common Language. Thank you, David and WCBN. This is Keith Orr from Common Language Bookstore. And greetings to our good friends, Jimena and Leon. I cannot say enough great things about the work Hark does in southeastern Michigan. Their work has been a lifesaver to many friends, and they have helped create a quality of life for people that have given up on life and quality. Thank you both. In our recent programs, we've talked about how an independent LGBT bookstore, such as Common Language, builds a sense of community. AIDS has been and still is a defining part of the community. So not surprisingly, a search of our inventory using keyword AIDS or HIV brings brings up over 50 items. And they comprise a wide variety of products and emphasis. There are items that show your support for a cause, like lapel pins and bracelets. There are books for kids about dealing with relatives or friends who have HIV AIDS. There are books for folks who are dealing with their initial diagnosis and books for counselors and psychotherapists, novels, plays, books that analyze the epidemic from social, medical, class, gender, gender, and ethnic perspectives, books on prevention and care for the general public and for specific risk groups. And none of this counts the enormous amount of fiction that centers around the topic topic, or the poetry and novels written by artists whom we have lost to the disease. To give a sense of the array of material available, let's look at three books, one literary, one political, and one personal. A work such as Tales of the City by Armistead Maupin chronicles in time the progression of the disease in its early years. When Marianne Singleton arrives in San Francisco at the beginning of book one, the disease is unknown. By the later books, AIDS is central to the narrative and the relationships at the core of the series. Michael Tolliver Lives is Armistead Maupin's remarkable and intimate portrait of a man 20 years after the series ended. The novel reflects on the ways that our community has been changed by the disease, by our reaction to it, and how medical advances have in turn changed our community. One of the seminal works on the epidemic 
and how the government did or did not react is And the Band Played On by Randy Schultz. Amazingly, the work is now in a 20th anniversary edition. In the book, Schultz reveals why AIDS was allowed to spread unchecked in the early days of the epidemic, while our most trusted institutions ignored or even denied the threat. It is a huge book, but a masterpiece of investigative reporting. And finally, I'd like to talk about a very important book. It's called The First Year HIV, An Essential Guide for the Newly Diagnosed. This book, too, ties into the sense of community for an independent LGBT bookstore. I've had several occasions where our bookstore was the first stop after a person's HIV diagnosis. The first thing I do is give them Hark's contact information. The second is I point them to a resource like this one. A lot of this book is in workbook format. For the newly diagnosed, this gives them a tool to hang on and focus on. They walk in with a fear of the unknown, and we try and give them something to hang on to, a compassionate ear, and then make sure they know about community resources like HARC, the HIV AIDS Resource Center. Thank you. This is Keith Orr from Common Language Bookstore in Ann Arbor. Keith Orr with the book report at Common Language Bookstore with Brick and Mortar based in Ann Arbor and on the web at glbtbooks.com. And at that website, you will find a link to their storefront that allows you to order books online and have them shipped directly to you. The phone for Common Language is 734-663-0036. I'm David Christopher Meitzler, and you're listening to Closets Are for Clothes. WCBN FM and Arbor. You're listening to the Gay Radio Collective on 88.3 WCBN FM and Arbor. Write us at closets at gayradiocollective.org. You can also find archive shows on our website or the weekly broadcast on iTunes. Support for WCBN and Closets Are for Clothes comes from the community and listeners like you. Hear WCBN anytime at the website wcbn.org. We're back. You're listening to Closets Are for Clothes, and my guests are Leon Golson and Jimena Loveluck, and they are from the HIV AIDS Resource Center. The HIV AIDS Resource Center is a private nonprofit organization founded in 1986. It's located in Ypsilanti, Michigan, and serves four counties, the Jackson, Lenaway, Livingston, and Washtenaw. And it's, it's 
an organization set up to help people and provide services to people living with HIV and AIDS to pro provide education for people and to provide testing. We've been talking about the testing process and the ins and outs of it. And I'm wondering, you know, testing, you're saying, well, everyone should get tested based on what they feel their their behavior is and, and whether or not they're practicing safe sex. And uh, is there an attitude of invulnerability in people? Yes, there is. Uh, we're talking about behavior and behavior singing around a very powerful um, urge, sex, uh, for the most part. So there is some denial there. There are a lot of internal issues that an individual struggles with or can get in the way of, of trying to keep themselves you know, safe or reduce their risk when it comes to HIV and other sexually transmitted infections. And denial is just one of many. I was just going to add that there are, um, it's estimated that about 25% of people living with HIV aren't aware that they're infected with HIV. Mm -hmm. So clearly our efforts around outreach and education are ongoing and mm -hmm. um, in constant need because people are at risk and for a variety of reasons, like Leon mentioned, they're not getting tested and not finding out their HIV status. If someone has HIV and let's say they don't know it and they have sex with somebody else and it's let's say it's unprotected sex, mm -hmm. is that a guaranteed infection of the other person? Most of the time. Um, depending on what sexual activity is being engaged in most of the time. There are a few exceptions to the rule where one-time exposure of having unprotected sex with someone who's infected may not lead to infection. But again, those instances are very rare. What, what population is infected the most of, of the breakdown? Who, what, what group has the highest level of infections? Well, we're seeing... Um, we're seeing and we're concerned with young African-American men who have sex with men because that's where we're seeing um, new infections and that's where we're seeing quite a bit of them. And why is that population higher? Again, it comes, plays back into some of those internal issues I alluded to a few seconds ago. Self-esteem being one, internalized homophobia being the biggest uh, drugs and alcohol, and for those folks who don't know what internalized homophobia is, it's just that, the internalization of all that negativity out there that the world has about um, we are who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender, and that gets internalized uh, into each of us. Are you So you're saying that they, the people with internalized homophobia are having sex in areas which are providing for a greater risk and in situations that are greater risk? For some of us who are struggling with internalized homophobia, Engaging in high-risk sexual activities or drug abuse or eating disorder, attempted to suicides are our own way of coping or dealing with that internalization. Okay, so the unprotected sex is one way it's being dealt with, um, along with a whole bunch of other ways, but Correct. the unprotected sex is what's leading to the higher infection of HIV. Correct. Okay. So what's the solution to this high incident with this specific population? That's the answer we're still trying uh -huh. to get right um it's you got to work with this from the inside out again starting with the individuals trying to help them with some of those internalized issues that's been getting in the way and keeping them in unhealthy situations and then you have to work with the external influences as well um it's rare when any of us who are identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, get a pat on the back saying, great, for you, great job for you. You're a gay person. Wonderful. It's usually the opposite. 
in a 24, we live in a heterosexual world, 24 seven, we're bombarded with messages that who and what we are is gay lives and bisexual transgender people isn't right. Everyone should be straight. So all those external influences need to be worked with as well. All those external messages need to change. Um, religion, church is another big challenge, particularly for African-American community. I myself was brought up in the African-American Baptist church, and I can't tell you how many times I heard from the pulpit how I'm an abomination. And then I walk outside the church and at some point get a message saying, oh, by the way, use a condom. Well, how do I reconcile that? Knowing that my God doesn't even love me, but yet I got to feel good enough about myself to use a condom. The two messages clash. That gets internalized. Mm -hmm. That leads to me probably, and that's probably one of the reasons why I'm infected today. Well, and I also think that's why it's so important that our prevention messages and services be tailored to meet the needs of that specific population that you're trying to reach, because otherwise it's going to fall on deaf ears or it's not going to elicit the kind of response that you're hoping. And I also think that to the extent that we can involving uh, members of whatever community you're trying to reach in the efforts, in the prevention efforts, in planning services and delivering services is going to lead to more successful efforts. It sounds like a long-term project. Yes, it is. And something that has been battled since the, since the organization opened, since mm -hmm. the HIV AIDS Resource Center opened its doors, and, and, and to the groups of people before that who were, who were trying to uh, wrestle with this. Right. We often we often say around the office, well, you know, someday maybe Hark won't need to exist or maybe, you know, someday we will work ourselves out of a job because we'll be successful in prevention efforts. So, but yeah. that requires a, a really big national worldwide effort. So it's addressing a kind of a social disease, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. OK, so what does it say? Uh, so someone's getting tested. What does it say about that individual who's getting tested? Is there uh, an associated stigma to being tested? Unfortunately, yes, there is. What and why? What is that and why? Depending on who's putting that stigma on the other person, um, the person could, who's getting tested could be perceived as um, someone who's having a lot of, you know, risky sex. Um, from my standpoint, I see it as someone being very responsible um, for their health and for the health of anyone else they may be involved in. But again, that's me. Not everyone, you know, sees the world through my eyes. Uh, it just depends on who's looking at that other person, you know, walking in the testing door, how they're going to be perceived and what kind of stigma they're going to get. I, and, I, and I think there are a lot of efforts to make it more, this is what I'm doing to take care of my health and mm -hmm. make it sort of uh, a regular test that you would take mm -hmm. at your doctor's office or at another public health center to uh, make sure that you're in good health. And certainly on a national level, there are a lot of efforts to incorporate HIV testing more and more into you know, regular medical care. The, the problem is that there's stigma not just around HIV testing, there's stigma around HIV and AIDS. So uh, whether you, know, you think you might be at risk, that stigma um, could prevent you from getting the services you need because of the fear of what you think others are going to think if you go and get tested or what the results might be. So that stigma affects not only people who are coming in for HIV testing or making a decision about testing, but it certainly affects people who are putting themselves at risk and people who are living with HIV. Certainly there are other sexually transmitted diseases out there. Why is, is HIV more important than another one? No, it's 
just as well, as far as the testing of goes, it, not not as far as the, the significance of the infection of the people. Yeah, the testing it process. It is. Um, sexually transmitted infections can actually increase a person's susceptibility to becoming HIV infected. Whenever a sexually transmitted infection is taking place within what I refer to as a pink part, those being the mouth, the throat, the um, anus rectum, the vagina cervix, the meatus and urethra. Whenever those parts are impacted by a sexually transmitted infection, our body kicks in uh, mechanisms that can help facilitate HIV infection taking place. One thing that happens to those pink parts is our immune systems will send scout cells to those infected areas. And the scout cells have receptors on the outside of them that kind of look like a little cup. And if HIV happens to be in the vicinity of that uh, pink part at that time, HIV has receptors that kind of look like a little ball, fits very nicely inside the little cup of the scout cell. And the scout cells can pull HIV into a person's body. So STDs irritate those pink parts. The scout cells come to the surface. They hang out there for a while because they don't know if the infection is coming back. And they can actually pull HIV into the body. So that's why it's important to get yourself screened and checked for sexually transmitted infections as well as HIV. All right. So there are people out there who probably will say mm-hmm. that they have the if they have if they have the disease, they don't want they don't want to know about mm-hmm. it. Yes, we've heard that. We've heard that. And for me, it's a scary thing to hear. Um, one reason I'm still here after being infected so long is at some point I decided to be proactive versus reactive with my infection. Getting tested and finding out early gives you and your, hopefully you'll have access to a health provider, healthcare provider, doctor, gives you a chance to get a jump on the infection. The sooner you can get a jump on working with this, whether it's medication or or your mental or uh, spiritual being, you know, your everyday eating habits, your exercise, getting just kind of giving HIV a hard way to go from the beginning versus waiting until it's had time to do its damage can really add years to a person's life. All right, specifically about the tests, uh, what tests are in use today? Oral Shore, you said? Mm-hmm. The Oral Shore, the swab. Um, there's the rapid test, which is also a swab, and the standard um, blood draw. Mm-hmm. Now, the Oral Shore takes a sample of saliva? No, it actually collects cells from the inside of the cheek, and that's what uh, is sent to the lab, and the lab looks for antibodies in, the, in that sample. Mm-hmm. And when you said the test that you could buy on your own mm-hmm. and do on yourself, that's that's a blood test that comes yeah, to the blood from the blood finger. Exactly. Why isn't the oral shore available over the counter? Well, at this point, funding has a lot to do with that money. Because it's, it's an expensive test. It's an expensive okay. test. Okay. Does it hurt to take the oral shore test? No. There's mm-hmm. no pain involved. And how reliable is it? Well, to be technical, the um, Orsure, the needle draw, the finger prick, those are just ways to collect a sample. When the lab in Lansing gets that sample, they run the actual test. They run an ELISA and a Western blot, and those tests are 99.8% accurate. So they're very accurate tests that's run on those samples. Should someone get tested twice within a certain period? It depends on what's going on. One of the things that we do talk to each client about is when did they think they may have exposed themselves to HIV because there's a window period, which you spoke to in your introduction with regards to HIV testing, 25 days to three months. If a person's been exposed to HIV, it's going to take about 25 days for their body to make those antibodies that the test will look for. 
So if I've waited 25 days and I've got a negative test result, but something inside for me isn't sitting, I'm not at, I don't find peace with that. I have the option of waiting another 25 days, refraining from any risky behavior and getting another test done. That way my body's had plenty enough time to make those antibodies. So let's say my second negative test comes back. I'm still not at ease with my second negative. I can wait 25 more days, refrain from any risky behavior, get the test done a third time. That way I've got my three months in there. And then hopefully I'll be able to breathe a sigh of relief that I'm truly negative for HIV. Mm -hmm. And in the HIV testing process, the counselors are there to do a session, a pre-test session, and then also a post-test session when clients come back for their results. And as you can see from, you know, what Leon has talked about, there's a lot to cover. There's a lot of information. There are a lot of questions that people have. So I just want to reiterate the importance of that counseling and that client-centered approach because our counselors tailor those sessions for the individuals that are coming in to respond to their specific needs and issues. And there's no doubt that our our return rates, which are very high, are, are a reflection of the quality of the counseling that clients are getting. And I think that's a really important part that oftentimes people don't think about, well, I can just go buy a test or why don't we just, you know, make everyone get mandatory testing? Um, and it's really important that that education and counseling piece be part of it. Yes. Getting tested does not directly protect you from anything. It simply gives you an, a snapshot of what your health status is. When we get into these conversations about well, what your safer sex plan is going to be and what your first action step to achieve that plan, that's really going to protect you or reduce your risk. That's the meat and potatoes of a test test counseling session. And a lot of people get a little impatient with our clients, our counselors in that process. But again, having that swab done or that blood draw done, that's not protecting you from anything. So the actual test itself, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm guessing is very short. It's like a minute to take this, the swab sample. But mm-hmm. what's taking time is the, is, the, is the time with the counselor. Exactly. And, um, and how long does that take? So I'm guessing, uh, what, 20 minutes inside and out? Or? That's the short end. Yeah. It depends on what situation the individual is bringing and sharing with, so the, with the counselor. They're asking a lot of questions, right? Yeah. Isn't that invasive? We're, we're, we like to think that we're pretty good at asking those open-ended questions, so it feels less pervasive. And one of the things that the counselor will do, just as any health professional is supposed to do, is pre-warn the client what's going to happen um, before the session gets started. They'll set the stage and they'll let the client know we're going to be asking um, some very um, detailed questions about your sexual activity or your substance use activity, you know, how you feel about that, you're comfortable with that. And then we'll move forward from there. Are they taking notes? Sometimes. It depends because some of the information, the feed information we get back or history that's being shared with us can be very involved and we don't want to miss any important points. So if there's notes being taken, the counselor will share that with the client as mm-hmm. well. I'm the, just going to jot some notes down. The counselor they start with, is that the counselor they essentially check out with after the, after the test? A lot of the times, yes, but sometimes no. Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes a different counselor will give those test results and, and review their safer sex goals and action steps. I'm guessing that the the revealing of those very personal answers to those very personal questions mm-hmm. can be emotionally um, problematic for, mm-hmm. for some people. Sure. sure. So, and so what kind of environment, give me a sense of what kind of secu- um, um, uh, security do they have there? Are they in a, a 
private room? Are people watching them walk in, walk out? Um, how much on display are they? Mm-hmm. Well, we do have a little um, reception area when you come in our door in our office and you sit down and you fill out your paperwork. So someone else might see you there. But once you fill out your paperwork and you're ready to go back into our counseling room, that's where um, the doors are closed and no one sees you or hears what's going on. We have sound machines outside the doors of where the counseling sessions take place because we use a couple offices depending on how busy we are. Sound machines, so mm-hmm. white white noise mm-hmm. generators? White noise generators so no one can hear the conversation. Mm-hmm. The actual paperwork is locked away in a file cabinet in our testing room as we call it. And then that room itself is locked. Are names used? If a client wants to be tested with their name, we'll do that. Otherwise, we have what? An option. The anonymous. Op- yeah, anonymous testing is the other option that you, we you have. You have a number, a tracking number or mm-hmm. something? There is a series of numbers that we use. Now, considering you have seven or 800 tests done per year mm-hmm. uh, and you're doing these sessions before and after a test, that's a lot of work hours. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. How, how do you, I would think, what do you, how does your staff handle all that? It seems like there'd be a lot of traffic, a lot of time just on that. Mm-hmm. It is, it is. We do have um, some very dedicated and wonderful volunteers that have, on their own time and with their own money, gone through and taken the state HIV test counselors training and go through the shadowing process that we have and go ahead and uh, join the paid staff as HIV test counselors. So that helps. So sometimes an applicant may be uh, having a conversation with a counselor and there's someone else shadowing that counselor? Mm -hmm. As part of the training process, Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah, but only with the client's uh, consent. We always would ask the client first, and if they're not comfortable, that's fine. Uh Uh, How does, like, a test with HARC differ from, let's say, I go to a local family doctor for the test? Mm -hmm. I'm guessing there's no counseling. Mm -hmm. Well, um, there may be no counseling or very little, Um, certainly not to the extent and in detail that we get into in our counseling sessions. So that's certainly a difference. Um, They may use different testing, a different test themselves, but um, that really uh, the results would come back the Mm -hmm. same way. So um, but, yeah, the big difference is is that counseling session. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about prevention and education. Can can HIV be transmitted or received without having sex? Um, well, if you're engaging in an activity that's involving the blood, semen, vaginal fluid, breast milk, or pre-cum from an infected person moving from one person to another, yes, if I'm in a fight. I'm HIV infected. If I get in a fight with someone and the person I'm fighting with, skin gets broken, and I end up bleeding and my blood gets into that, that open cut, then yeah that person has potential risk exposure there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're talking about everyday casual contact, like we're sitting in the studio booth with you, um, you know, riding a bus, going to grocery stores and a show, no, HIV isn't transmitted that way. You don't get it from toilet seats or, um, you know, sharing a drink or anything like that. You have to have that direct exchange of the infected uh, fluids. What about kissing? Kissing, depending on the degree, um, the intensity of the kissing, you know, little pecks on the cheek where there's no exchange of blood or anything like that, it's fine. Where there might be a small risk of infection is if you really get into aggressive kissing where there might be a break in the... in the gum area. Some people can be really aggressive in their kissing. Sharing a beverage? Sharing a beverage is not going to do it... um, is not going to transmit HIV infection. What if a carrier has an open sore in their mouth and they share a beverage with you? Mm-hmm. Again, highly unlikely that's going to lead to infection for another person. My infected blood would have to, first of all, um, 
be in the right place on that beverage cup or can or whatever it is. And then that person would have to, um, you know, get that into their system right away. And right. this isn't a virus that lives in, in open air. Yeah, it doesn't for, do well outside of human of body. Can HIV be transmitted even if a condom is used? Uh, highly unlikely. I have, I know these qualifiers are, you know, rubbing people you know, the wrong I, way. But if a condom breaks. There you go. <laughs> okay. All right. Exactly. That's a valid example. Exactly. And Which I'll does use, happen. Exactly. And I'll use me and my partner, for example. My partner and I have been together for 10 years. My partner's negative. On those occasions where a condom was used, they were used. And my partner is still negative. So 10 years into a relationship and using a condom. So they are effective if used correctly all the time. Now, I know you're not... Lawyers, I'm, I'm assuming you're not lawyers, but mm-hmm. is it is it legal to have sex with someone if you have a if you know you have a sexually transmittable disease? It is not illegal to have sex with with someone. Where the legal language comes in, situation comes in is is the disclosure. Michigan has a disclosure law that says if I know my HIV status, I am to inform my current and future partners before I have sex with them penetrative sex and penetration is broadly defined under the Michigan disclosures law. If I take my finger and stick it in someone's ear and I don't disclose my status before I do that, I've committed a felony under the Michigan disclosure law. It's a felony, even though it's a Michigan law. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a felony here in Michigan. And, uh, what if a person doesn't know they have a disease? Is that against the law then? You know, we were talking about people who, if they, they, they their mm-hmm. ideas, uh, if, mm-hmm. I, if I have it, I don't want to know. Right, right. And that's, again, does this disclosure law mm-hmm. and how it's worded, if you know your status. Mm-hmm. But you don't need to disclose it to past partners, only current There's, and future. It's left up to you. The law does not speak to past partners. There is a voluntary process in place called partner services. Uh, if an individual doesn't feel they are equipped or able to disclose to past partners. They can access partner services through their local health department. They share information about their past partners with um, personnel there, and that personnel will go out, find those partners, wow. and anonymously keep that, you know, keep that person identity anonymous, um, offer them HIV test counseling, as well as for the other sexually transmitted infections, because Michigan being a leader, we've stepped that up and we've included all the other sexually transmitted infections as well. Tell me about harm reduction. Mm -hmm. Harm reduction is the the process, the theory that um, basically an individual is going to engage in activity where there's a degree of harm. Okay, they're not ready to stop that activity completely. Mm -hmm. They want to continue in it, and what it is is involves a two way conversation to help that person decrease the harm to them or someone else. In that situation, an example is, say, I enjoy crossing the freeway. Okay. okay. I like running across the freeway. Sounds harmful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. I do not want to stop running across the freeways. So what I might want to talk to a counselor about, a counselor might talk to me about, well, what times of the day might we, you want to run across the freeway where you're less likely to get hit? That's harm reduction. Okay. okay. So I'm going to run across the freeway at like three in the morning versus five or six, mm-hmm. you know, okay. so that is that concept there. And that approach can be used in a variety of situations. We have a syringe exchange program mm-hmm. and 
typically syringe exchange programs have particularly adopted the harm reduction approach in working with injecting drug users to reduce their harm related to their drug use. Um, and the goal is not necessarily to uh, abstain from drug use if, if they're ready to take that step. Certainly, we work with them to take that step. But really, if they're going to continue to inject drugs, let's uh, build their skills and, and knowledge so that they can reduce the risk of HIV transmission and hepatitis C. Okay, real quick, we have mm -hmm. an AIDS walk coming up, and that is, uh, this one's going to be September 27th, 2009. Where can people find out more information about this? They can find out information through HARC by calling us or looking at our website. Also, we have an event website, which is www.aidswalkmichigan.org. People can sign up to walk as an individual or a team uh, through the website, and all of the funds go directly to support local local. HIV AIDS services provided by HARC. Well, Leon Golson and Jimena Lovelock, thank you so much for coming down. Thank you I know for having, was a, I know for having it was a, us. A, a rapid fire. Yeah, it was. <laughs> we could have kept Show. going. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they're both from the HIV AIDS Resource Center and uh, serving the counties in Michigan, Jackson, Lenaway, Livingston, and Washtenaw. Closets is on the internet at thegayradiocollective.org slash archives, website, wcbn.org, iTunes, and Facebook. Our engineer tonight was Alex Belhage. I'm David Christopher Meitzler. You've been listening to Closets Are for Clothes, and we are the Gay Radio Collective. Medical Matters, the horror of vitamin FF deficiency. I'm not feeling right. Vitamin FF is a little-known but essential substance for human body chemistry. My stool is hard. Lack of vitamin FF can manifest itself in a variety of symptoms. You know, my headaches and I'm breaking out in cold sweats and my ears are sad and... Vitamin FF is only found at specifically enlightened radio stations that are committed to the propagation of the freeform style of broadcasting. Check your local listings for a government-approved source. I haven't been sleeping very well lately either. WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. Use only as prescribed.